This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us again. We have a great show in tune for you. And I'm joined by uh, my special guest, Dr. Ashley Manuk, who's a family physician in Trenton, Ontario. Ashley, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Karen. Happy to be here. I just want to take two seconds to time out before we get into things to tell our listeners what's been going on at the Rounds Table the last few weeks. Many of you have probably noticed that we've aired our episodes on a bi-weekly basis now, and that was due to my very busy schedule writing the Royal College exam for my qualifying license as a general internist. So good news, I'm done that now, and we will be back to weekly episodes to keep you up to date on the most recent and important medical research happening around the world. That being said, Ashley, let's get right into things. Tell us about the article you've chosen for this week. Uh, I chose an article that was just published in February in The Lancet, and this is a randomized control trial looking at the use of liraglutide in patients who are overweight or obese with prediabetes as a prevention for type 2 diabetes. Fantastic. So no longer are we treating secondary complications of diabetes like coronary artery disease. We're now looking at preventing it. What was the bottom line for this article, Ashley? Well, in a randomized control trial of more than 2,000 overweight or obese prediabetic patients, treatment with once daily liraglutide for three years in conjunction with diet and exercise was associated with significantly lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes and also a greater sustained weight loss compared to placebo. A lot of critical mass in there. Let's unpack that. Why did you choose this article? I mean, we all know that uh, diabetes is quite the epidemic at this point. And for a lot of our patients who end up being diagnosed with diabetes, they spend months or maybe years in this pre-diabetic stage. Uh, Most of the patients are overweight or obese at the time. And now that we are able to recognize these patients who are at increased risk of developing diabetes, this sort of gives us an opportunity for some sort of high yield intervention, should we find one, to prevent progression of their metabolic disease into full-blown diabetes. I've seen a lot of that in the research recently, trying to identify a critical window in which to intervene with the aim of prevention. So hopefully we're entering that era of medicine where we are able to do it. Tell us, Ashley, what was the design of the study and where did it take place? This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study of 2,254 patients with prediabetes and overweight or obesity. The participants were drawn from 191 clinical research sites in 27 countries in Europe, North America, South America, Asia, Africa, and Australia. So this trial was actually an extension of a larger global study designed to investigate the safety and efficacy of liraglutide for weight management in patients with and without prediabetes. So after the initial 56-week study period, those participants who had prediabetes at baseline continued on to the present trial that I'm talking about. And that included another two years of treatment with liraglutide, followed by a 12-week off-treatment follow-up period. Right. And I don't know if the study investigators are being cheeky or not, but this large research program is called the SCALE program, and it is occurring in overweight and obese individuals. I thought that was kind of clever. So, Ashley, I had a question for you. This concept of prediabetes, can you help us unpack what that is? 
So according to this study, they use the American Diabetes Association 2010 criteria for prediabetes, which is hemoglobin A1C of 5.7 to 6.4%, or a fasting plasma glucose concentration between 5.6 and 6.9, or a two-hour post-challenge plasma glucose between 7.8 and 11. And did they exclude any key populations from this trial? They did. So this was a study of pre-diabetics. So those patients who had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes were excluded. And also any patients who were on medications that caused significant weight gain or loss were excluded, as well as patients with a history of bariatric surgery, a history of pancreatitis, or you know one of the MEN2 syndromes, or a history of thyroid cancer, and also patients with major depression or other severe psychiatric disorders were excluded. Fair enough. So tell us, what was the intervention for this trial? So the intervention was the use of lirglutide, three milligrams subcutaneous daily versus placebo for 160 weeks. This was also in conjunction with diet and lifestyle. So all participants, whether they were in the lirglutide group or the placebo group, received standard lifestyle counseling about once every month throughout the trial period. And they were advised to exercise at least 150 minutes per week and to reduce caloric intake to 500 calories below their individualized energy requirement. So in doing all of this, what is the primary question that they're trying to get at? And what are the primary outcomes that they're going to measure here? So in this portion of the study, they're really aiming to look at the proportion of participants who are diagnosed with diabetes by 160 weeks and the time to onset of diabetes. So essentially, they're looking at whether the use of lyriglutide can delay the onset of diabetes. At the same time, they're looking at mean weight loss and specifically the proportion of participants who lost at least 5% of their baseline body weight and then those who lost more than 10% of their baseline body weight. Some secondary outcomes were a number of changes in glycemic control parameters as well as BMI, waist circumference, a number of cardiometabolic biomarkers, vital signs, and health-related quality of life. And, you know, in reading this trial, I think the reason that they were randomized in a two-to-one fashion, which is a little unusual if you're just doing a straight comparison of efficacy, in this case, the onset of diabetes, was that they also wanted to look at safety outcomes in the use of the liraglutide. And in order to be able to power the trial with enough patients to be able to detect their primary outcome, but also to be able to detect significant differences in potential adverse effects of the liraglutide, they required more individuals that were going to be exposed to the liraglutide to do so. So that was why they chose this design. All right, Ashley, take us through the main findings of this study. You've set the table nicely. Let's dig in. Okay. So by week 160... 2% of the patients in the liraglutide group were diagnosed with diabetes compared to 6% in the placebo group. So quite a difference there. For those in the liraglutide group who were diagnosed with diabetes, the time to diagnosis was on average 99 weeks compared with 87 weeks for the placebo group. And taking into account the frequency of diagnoses between groups, the time to onset of diabetes over 160 days among all randomized individuals was 2.7 times longer with liraglutide than with placebo. So because individuals develop diabetes 
at differing time points throughout that 160-week period, you could say that taking liraglutide will delay your development of diabetes by two and a half times more than somebody who doesn't take liraglutide. Right. And furthermore, while they were on treatment, those participants who were in the liraglutide group were significantly more likely to regress from prediabetes to normal glycemia compared to the placebo group. So 66% of the treatment group were regressed to normal glycemia compared to 36% in the placebo group. Very impressive. What about the weight loss that we know GLP-1 agonists can uh, portend? Yeah, so weight loss was also fairly dramatic in this study. So the liraglutide induced a significantly greater weight loss. That's six kilograms lost versus two kilograms lost in the placebo group. Now remember, this is in conjunction with diet and exercise advice as well. Um, Loss of more than 5% body weight was 50% in the liraglutide group versus 24% in placebo. And loss of more than 10% body weight was 25% in the liraglutide group versus 10% in placebo group. Now, some of this weight was regained during the 12-week off treatment period after the three years, but the difference did remain significant between the two groups nonetheless. Interesting. And I think that part of that, if you look at the side effects that are reported from liraglutide, you know, nausea and low appetite are part of it. And that may be contributing to why some of that weight is gained back during the 12 week off treatment period. But also, you know, some of the realities of randomized trials, we know that it's very intensive when you're when you're involved in the treatments, and people are following you up. And maybe when you go off treatment, and there's a little less uh, follow up, you have a tendency to slip a little bit. And well, something important to note here also is some of the other endpoints, which included a significantly reduced uh, systolic blood pressure of the treatment group, and also improved measures of insulin resistance. So this, you know, sort of indicates that this medication might actually be getting to the root of the metabolic dysfunction in these people and really treating that. Yeah, that's possible. But, and there's a big but coming up here, I think, what about any interesting points or limitations to this study that caught your eye? Well, one thing that was quite obvious in the study was a very high dropout rate, which apparently is not so uncommon in, in obesity studies. But in the liraglutide group, only 53% of participants actually completed the 160 weeks of treatment. And in the placebo group, only 45% of participants completed treatment. So this just leads to naturally quite a lot of missing data. Now, it's important to note that in the liraglutide group, a higher percentage of patients dropped out actually due to adverse effects, whereas in the placebo group, more of the patients dropped out due to ineffective therapy, essentially. Yeah. To me, if you put into context, some people would call fatal flaws of randomized trials, or at least if you're assessing the quality of a randomized trial, typically around a 20% dropout rate is deemed to be acceptable. And if you get above that, you're starting to get into, you know, threatening, threatening the validity and the quality of the trial itself. And a, if half your patients drop out for a variety of reasons, I think there's that, that's a big red flag for me. Yeah, no, I agree. And also uh, the study did look at side effects of treatment. And certainly even with the lack of some data, there are certainly quite a few GI side effects with the liraglutide compared to placebo. 
And in the study, they also identified an increased risk of gallbladder effects, even acute cholecystitis and acute gallstone disease in patients on treatment. So those are important things to consider, especially when you're treating somebody who is not actually a diabetic yet. You're putting them at some risk. All right, Ashley. Well, thank you for highlighting all of that. Any other important limitations of the study that we haven't discussed? Not particularly. I thought in general it was a well-conducted study. The main limitation was this high dropout rate. But even with that, the results seem to be believable and biologically plausible, given what we know about the mechanism of action of the drug. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. So Ashley, who does this study apply to and and how are you going to apply the evidence to your practice? Well, this study applies to pre-diabetic patients, uh, adult patients. The average age in this study was about 47 years old. And remember, all the patients in this study were either overweight or obese. So their BMI had to be at least over 30 or at least over 27 with comorbidities. Now, I noted the important exclusion criteria of significant mental health issues or the use of other potentially weight-modifying drugs, as this does represent a large number of our patients who would be technically excluded from this. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I noticed as well is they didn't report on patients uh, or individuals' um, health literacy or socioeconomic status, you know, all of these things which can play into uh, the management of chronic diseases, although I guess you would expect them to be balanced in a randomized trial. That's true. And then you mentioned sort of, uh, you know, how we might apply this in our practice, and definitely one of the Uh, limiting factors or one of the barriers in this case would be the cost of treatment uh, because these medications are not covered on ODB and many of the patient, you know, 47-year-old patient who doesn't have private coverage will be very limited in their ability to use this medication just due to cost alone. Right. And so for our listeners who aren't in Canada uh, or even Ontario for that matter, uh, ODB is a government insurance program for uh, elderly individuals over the age of 65 where their drugs are covered uh, and paid for if they're you know, on the formulary that, that the government uh, determines, of which liraglutide at present is not. Exactly. Thanks for making that uh, clearer. And then also in terms of whether this would change my practice, I would say that you know, I personally am still on the stage where I'm trying to get my diabetic patients on some of the GLP-1 agonists. So to make this whole paradigm shift where we're starting to treat pre-diabetics, I think for me personally, that's probably going to take a little bit of time. And again, it's because of you know cost, uh, the route of administration, which is unfortunately subcutaneous rather than oral, which uh, will the, is the way it will remain for now, at least. And also it's difficult to convince a patient sometimes when they're in a pre-diabetic stage to start a medication. That That's sort of a tough pill for them to swallow, so to speak, even though it's not a pill here. <laughs> pun, uh, pun taken. But certainly the fact that uh, patients will be losing weight and you can tell them about uh, the side effect of weight loss, that's going to be a big draw, I think, for a lot of patients to take these medications. Well, I think it was a great trial to look at. And I think, you know, my takeaway points are that there is promise in pharmacotherapy for the prevention of progression of prediabetes to diabetes. And it just remains to be seen how that will play out in the real world of non-randomized trials. Thank you, Ashley. Let's move on to my article. So I chose to look at longer-term outcomes of bariatric surgery in the treatment of diabetes. And this was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2017. And the first author was Philip Schauer. Okay, so another very recently published study. Uh, What was the bottom line of this article? 
So this randomized control trial compared bariatric surgery to intensive medical therapy in 150 obese individuals who had established type 2 diabetes. And it found that bariatric surgery plus intensive medical therapy was more effective than intensive medical therapy alone in decreasing hyperglycemia and was not associated with major surgical complications. Now, Kieran, why did you choose this particular article? Well, Bariatric surgery is being increasingly recognized as a very effective and obviously aggressive intervention in obese individuals and treating the complications that they develop. But all of the trials and observational studies have all been in short-term time frames, and they have demonstrated that they've improved glycemic control, reduced cardiovascular risk, and even improved the quality of life for individuals who are obese and have type 2 diabetes. This trial, which is known as the STAMPEDE trial, demonstrated the effects that we've seen in previous observational studies and trials. They followed patients for a total of five years in this trial, which, as mentioned, was to look at the durability overall of surgical intervention for the treatment of diabetes. Okay, well that's a pretty big deal. Uh, take me through the design of this study. So this was a three-group study, and it was randomized and controlled. Uh, now, it was non-blinded. Obviously, it's next to impossible to blind somebody to bariatric surgery. And it was a single-center study. Now, they stratified individuals according to their baseline use of insulin, and they conducted it at the Cleveland Clinic in the United States between the years 2007 and 2011. Okay, and who were the patients uh, included in the study? So it was quite a, um, a, quite a simple design. Uh, the eligibility criteria that you had to be between the age of 20 to 60 years old, you had a glycated hemoglobin level, an A1C, of more than 7%, and your body mass index was between 27 and 43. So, uh, of course, the intervention in this trial is bariatric surgery. Is there any other aspect to the intervention here? Well, I mentioned that it was a three-group study, and the reason is, is because there's two different types of bariatric surgery that they do. So you have one group that is an intensive medical therapy, second group which is a gastric bypass or Roux-en-Y procedure in which they create a small thumb-sized pouch from the upper stomach accompanied by a bypass using the small intestine of the remaining stomach and overall this restricts the volume of food which can be eaten. The third group was a bariatric surgery known as sleeve gastrectomy and in this procedure the stomach is reduced to about 15 percent of its original size by surgical removal of a large portion of the stomach along the greater curvature and the result is a sleeve or tube-like structure so certainly those are some very uh, invasive uh, treatments on offer there is there anything you wanted to mention about the uh, intensive medical therapy and what that might have included yeah so the intensive medical therapy is really pharmacotherapy and diet and exercise uh, encouragement as a physician sees fit for their patient. So, you know, you could use any one of the classes of antihyperglycemic medications, whether it was metformin as a biguanidine, TZDs, incretins, secretagogues, and insulin, anything you like with the goal of trying to get someone's uh, hemoglobin A1C to uh, level to 6% or less. Six percent. Oh. Yeah, even some of the most intensively controlled type 1 diabetics can't achieve that, uh, and there's obviously risks of hypoglycemia. But what they do is they adjust medications every three months for two years total, uh, and then every six months thereafter to the five-year endpoint with the goal of trying to achieve this uh, very robust and optimistic hemoglobin A1C level. 
Okay, wow. And what were the primary outcomes in the study? So they were looking at exactly their target. Uh, how many people could achieve the glycated hemoglobin level of 6% or less with or without the use of diabetes medications? So some of their pre-specified secondary outcomes of interest included measures of weight loss, some cardiovascular and end organ surrogates, you know, things like blood pressure, dyslipidemia, renal function. And then they looked at adverse event rates because obviously intensive medical therapy as well as surgery carry risks of adverse events. And they also measured quality of life in these individuals, which was kind of a nice touch. Okay. So take us to the results. What were the main findings of this study? So 134 individuals were included in the study. That's, I think, a good number if you're dealing with a surgical intervention as a, as a randomized trial. And at five years, the number of individuals with a hemoglobin A1C of less than 6% were as follows. In the first group, medical therapy alone, 5%. In the second group, gastric bypass, 29%. And in the third group, sleeve gastrectomy, 23%. Now, some may say, well, a hemoglobin A1C is 6% or less is pretty optimistic and maybe unrealistic in our real world. So let's look at it if you just looked at A1C of less than 7%, which is maybe a little bit more practical. So medical therapy alone for patients who achieved an A1C of less than 7%, 21%. Gastric bypass to an A1C of less than 7%, 51%. And sleeve gastrectomy, 49%. So overall you see about a 30% difference in the number of patients who are able to achieve a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7% when compared to medical therapy alone. Okay, so very impressive results there. Anything that you wanted to talk about in terms of limitations or potential biases in the study? Well, there's a couple other things I actually wanted to point out about the results to help put, paint them in a context of interpretation. Surgical patients had a decrease of 2.1 percentage points in their hemoglobin A1C at five years as compared with a reduction of only 0.3 percentage points among the patients who received medical therapy alone. So call that about 2% difference. What does that mean overall for their long-term cardiovascular benefit or their other complications of diabetes? This study doesn't address that, but at least as a surrogate, we know that surgery is an effective way to control their A1C. Right. And how about the weight loss? I imagine that the surgery group had quite a bit more weight loss. Good point, Ashley. So the medical therapy lost about 5 kilograms on average, whereas gastric bypass lost 23 kilograms and sleeve gastrectomy lost 19 kilograms. Um, so quite impressive. The last thing I would say about an important endpoint, as far as the amount of medications that patients had to use, so if you were in the medical therapy alone group, there was no change in your overall medication use. But in the gastric bypass group, 45% of the patients no longer required medications to treat their diabetes. And in the sleeve gastrectomy group, 25% of patients no longer required medications. So you got almost half your patients off of medications entirely if they underwent gastric bypass surgery for their diabetes. Pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, that's a huge deal, and, and for patients, definitely. And you can imagine that, you know, as a consequence of all of these beneficial effects of surgery, people reported in the surgical group that their quality of life was significantly improved compared to the medical groups. Okay, so what I want to know is, was there any downside to having the operation? It's a good question. The event rates for the adverse effects in all the groups were quite low. 
Now, you only have 134 patients in the trial, so you know you may not be powered to detect differences in the adverse event rates in this kind of a design. Contrast that to your study with the liraglutide, where they included twice as many individuals in the treatment arm to try to, to look at the safety outcomes of the treatment. So I'm not sure you can say the major differences are significant between this trial based on those limitations. But the only two differences that really did occur that were detected were there was more instances of hypoglycemia in the medical therapy alone. And in the surgical groups, they had more prevalence of anemia, which was fairly mild overall uh, and of no consequence. But keep in mind that it's not a really uh, large trial to be able to evaluate this. Right. I mean, interesting. It seems like sort of a sad state of affairs when we're forced to use such invasive measures on people. But I think it's important to see here how much benefit these patients were getting from these operations. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're increasingly recognizing that morbid obesity or severe obesity isn't a lifestyle choice of individuals. It's a, it's a medical condition. And bariatric surgery offers, in some instances, a cure for their diabetes when you know, to the best of their efforts and their physician's efforts, diet, exercise, and medications just can't get them there. Kieran, are there any significant limitations of the study you wanted to mention? Well, obviously, this can't really be a double-blinded, randomized trial. So there is some limitations in that because you can imagine a situation where somebody who undergoes major abdominal surgery, like a sleeve gastrectomy or a Roux-en-Y, well, they might feel more motivated to participate in the lifestyle changes to improve their overall glycemic control. Maybe they exercise a bit more. They make more healthy uh, dietary choices because they thought, well, I went under this, underwent the surgery for this, so I need to you know, buy into the program. And that might result in exaggerating the effects of the intervention. But you know what? The effect size in this trial is so large, even for 134 patients, I don't think you can make the argument that that's a major limitation and sort of invalidates the findings of this study, especially when they're supported by so many previous studies that have demonstrated the same finding. Okay. Kieran, uh, which patients does this study apply to? So the average patient in this trial was a white 50-year-old female who had a BMI of 36 and was a non-smoker. Her hemoglobin A1C at baseline before randomization was 9%, and she'd had diabetes for about eight years. As a consequence of this, she's taking three or more antihyperglycemic agents. Half of the individuals in this trial were on insulin, and they were treated with a statin and a NACE inhibitor. So overall, the patients in this trial were pretty well medically optimized for their diabetes and cardiovascular risk reduction, and I think it leaves you with the next step being bariatric surgery. With such dramatic results in this study, do you consider this a practice-changing study? Yeah, I think that this is a really high-quality randomized trial, albeit being a single center and the limitations discussed. The, the benefit of the surgical intervention is quite clear, and it appears to be durable in its effects up to five years. So is it practice-changing for me? Well, I think that I will definitely consider um, and make referrals to our bariatric surgeons in my uh, uh, city uh, when I'm dealing with diabetic patients who are morbidly obese, because this is an effective intervention. And if they're under willing to undergo it, who am I to withhold that from them? Yeah, I think I'd have to agree, Karen. All right, Ashley. Well, great discussion today. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Ashley, 
what's catching your attention in the medical literature this week? Well, I actually came across this study in sort of popular news, but it was a study that was also just recently published in the journal Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics. And this is regarding C. diff which I'm sure uh, most of you are familiar with. And you might also be familiar with the fact that uh, fecal microbiota transplantation has been shown to be a quite effective treatment, but unfortunately it's quite the uh, logistical nightmare in terms of getting stool from donors and having a fresh stool to administer to your C. diff patient. This is the first study to compare fresh fecal transplantation product to frozen product to freeze-dried product. Um, and this is, a, this is a big deal because the ability to have a product that is frozen or freeze-dried will make a big difference to uh, physicians who want to administer this therapy. So in the study, they actually found that frozen product worked as well as fresh product to clear C. diff in patients suffering with recurrent C. difficile. And a freeze-dried product uh, had lower efficacy, but also was quite efficacious at uh, curing C. diff. So this could be quite the uh, game changer in terms of how we might be able to logistically treat patients with recurrent C. diff in a more effective way. Well, Ashley, this week in The Good Stuff, I read an article in the New York Times that talked about what happens when parents are rude uh, to healthcare teams in the hospital. And specifically, this was in the NICU when the healthcare teams are looking after infants. And it wouldn't be as you would expect that, oh, well, if a parent was rude to a physician, then the physician would take that out on the, on the infant and, and care for them in a worse way. It was actually that the rude behavior affected the healthcare team's ability to operate together and look after the infant in a critical situation, resulting in, unfortunately, worse care for that, uh, for that patient. So what they did was they put these teams into a simulation. So say for like an infant arrest or something terrible like that. Um, and before that happened, they had real life actors say things like, oh, well, if I, uh, you know, my, my babies wouldn't get care like this in the country where I'm from, or uh, this is what happens when you take, you know, patients to a third world hospital here. Uh, these sort of terrible off the cuff comments. And they looked at how those teams performed before and after those comments were made. And really what they found was the team's ability to function deteriorated rapidly after a derogatory comment was made towards their care and overall they ended up making a lot more medical errors. It just goes to show that even if healthcare teams are rising above their own personal feelings, humans are affected by these types of emotional uh, situations such that they are unconsciously or unable to overcome them and unfortunately it looks like patient care might suffer. So don't forget to thank your nurse and your doctor for the care they provide each and every day. Thank you for that, Karen. Well, Ashley, thanks for joining us again on another great week of the Rounds Table. We look forward to having you back sometime in the near future, and I hope uh, things go well for you until then. Good luck on your exam, Karen. <laughs> Thank you. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com 
Brown's Table podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.